Dear Father, we, we just are amazed at your grace. Uh, as we've seen in, in evidence in Bud's life, in, uh, in some of our lives here, Lord God, and just the grace that you give us being in this place. We just, we just thank you. We're in awe by it. We, we, just, we just ask that you, by your grace and mercy, would meet us here right now would speak to us that that we would hear, we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for us this, this morning. We pray this in the matchless, precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So first, I'm, I just I want to thank all the people that have come to hear me. I got my boss here. On Monday morning, when I when I when I'm there, he might want to put me on top of some ductwork somewhere. Or, I don't know uh, after this, but anyway, I just thank thank you for coming. I appreciate it. I feel the love and support. So we're just gonna get going. We're gonna get started. Have you guys ever been to a place? It's just a perfect place. Have you been in that place where um, it just seems seems great? It seems like you're in a movie. And you can almost hear the soundtrack in the background, and it just feels great. Everything's perfect. The sounds, the sights, the smells. Well, Lori and I were in one of those spots a few years back. We used to live in Florida the first year of our marriage, and we were back visiting. And we got into the airport, and we were greeted by these people we dearly loved back there. And and that first afternoon, we went to the pier in St. Pete, which is where we lived. And the pier overlooks Tampa Bay. And we came there where kids were with us, Every all these people we loved. And everything was just seemed perfect. The seagulls, you could hear them in the background. The sun was dancing on the water. You could see the pelicans diving for the fish. You could smell these tropical flowers that we don't get here on this sea breeze. It was really great. Was, and we looked at each other, and we just knew we didn't want to forget that moment. We knew it was, it was like heaven. Have you guys ever been there? Not heaven or St. Pete, but that happy place. That place of uh, just, just where it's perfect. I think we all long for that. I would say we all long for that. It's in our DNA. We all long for what I call home. It's home. It's longing for home. Here's what I would define home as. Family, security, safety, warmth, love, rest, peace, a place to live, sleep, friends, happiness, joy, contentment. I only have a hundred more words. No pain. No worries, lasting, pleasure, fun, lasting, lasting, lasting. Home. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, he said, the fact that we have a hunger or a desire for something is an indication that the thing we long for actually exists. We have hunger, therefore food exists. We thirst. Water exists. We are curious. The universe exists. We long for a lasting home of peace and joy and contentment forever. What exists for that? Is that the only desire we have that can't be met? What exists to to satisfy that desire, that longing in all of our hearts for home? I'm just going to leave that question hanging out in space there and hopefully we'll come back to it and answer for that. And we're just going to dive right into our passage and we'll come to that answer. We're in First Peter. There's an outline in your program or your bulletin that you can follow. 
We're in First Peter. It's towards the end of your Bible. I think it's on, on, on the Bibles in your seats. It's on page 1015, if I remember correctly. Um, it's towards the end of your Bible. And about 1,945 years ago, plus or minus, Peter wrote this letter to believers. To believers who are Christians, early Christians of Jewish and non-Jewish background in what is now Turkey, is Asia Minor back then, to different churches, different cultural backgrounds, economic status, very diverse. And he wrote this 30 years after Jesus was on earth. See, Peter was one of the 12 disciples. He walked with Jesus. He, he ministered with Jesus. He saw Jesus die on the cross. He saw him after he rose from the dead. He saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And 30 years later, he wrote this letter to encourage these people. Because they were in the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire at that time was persecuting Christians. Nero, the uh, Caesar at that time, was a crazy guy. He burned down part of Rome to make way for his own palace, and then blamed Christians for it. And people believed him, and persecution reigned. And he even would take Christians and tie them to poles and light them on fire alive to light his parties as tiki lamps. That's how crazy this guy was. So Peter wrote this to encourage them in that midst of that climate, that, that trial. So let's read it. This is 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray one more time. Dear Father, uh, your word is living and active. It is, it is here to, to give us everything we need to live. I pray that I would come underneath it, I'd come behind it, that your, your words would remain and my words would be forgotten. If they just come from me, I pray that your truth would last. This morning, pray this in your, in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, who are we? Who are you? If you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, who are you? And Peter's trying to, not trying, he is answering that question, at least part of it. But first, in verse 8, he's talking to non-Christians. They stumble because they disobey the word. But verse 9 says, but you are a chosen race. He's talking to believers, Christians, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So first, what do all those things have in common? They have the notion of being set apart, Right? A chosen, royal, holy, a people for his own possession. It's this idea of, of being picked above everything else. That's what they all have in common. And Peter's just reminding them of what they should already know. Okay, a thousand years before this was written in Deuteronomy 7, 6, Moses wrote these words, and they knew them. They knew their scripture well. For you are a people Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So Peter is reminding them of who they already are 
as Christians. Just like you and I need to be reminded of who we are. That's what he's doing to them, to encourage them. So first, a chosen race, a holy nation. What does that mean? He's talking about them being one race, a chosen race. But he's talking to both Jews and non-Jews, people from different cultures. But he's telling them they're one race. They're a new race. And again, we have to look at the context of this letter. And Peter's painting this beautiful picture all the way through it, a thread throughout the whole thing of who they are, who our identity is in Christ. And if, if we look at chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in verse 23, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And then in, and then in verse 2, chapter 2, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So there's this picture of being born again. I know you've all heard that expression, born again believer, born again believer. What does that mean? Well, once we decide, once someone decides to follow Jesus and follow him with their lives, a transformation takes place. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, sorry, there's a lot of references. You're just, you're just going to have to follow me. got a lot to say. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Anybody who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. So if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, it's this idea of being a new creature. What you were is no longer what you are. You're transformed. You're something new. You're something new. We're born again. That's what that means. We get... We get new eyes, new ears, just like a baby. It's interesting. Let's move on to the royal priesthood. What is that all about? When I say a priest, what image comes in your head? What is it? Is it? It's probably the guy with the black suit and the white collar, right? That's a priest. But that's not quite the picture here. It's more like the guy at the end of Raiders of Lost Ark. You know, the guy with the, the turban and he has the breast piece thing and he has the robe and he's chanting in Hebrew over the ark. Okay, maybe a couple of you got that. But it's, it's like the Hebrew, it's a Hebrew priest he's talking about. In the Old Testament, before, before Jesus' ministry on earth, um, God, through Moses, established a priesthood. And these priests were intermediaries between God and man. They represented God to man by, by, by telling them what God requires of them through the law. And they represented man to God by offering sacrifices and worshiping to him. They were go-betweens, right? But the thing I want to point out here with the priesthood is that they had no earthly inheritance. They had no earthly inheritance. When the Hebrew people, the Jews, went into the promised land, which is now Israel, they were divided. They had they were 12 tribes, right? And they came into the promised land, and they divvied out that land between each Tribe. Each tribe had their own region. Each tribe had their own land to call their own, their inheritance. But one tribe, the tribe of Levi, which is where all the priests came from, they got no inheritance. They got no land there. Joshua thirteen fourteen is where you can find this, and I'll just read it for you. It says, To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance. So instead of a land, a region to call their own, a home, they got work. Work for the Lord. Service for Him. 
Doesn't sound very fair, but it was God's way. It was God's way. And the royal part of that is now Christ is our high priest, right? He is our go-between. There's only one mediator, it says in the Bible, between God and man, and that's Jesus. And so now he's our high priest, he's our sacrifice, and he fulfills all that stuff in the Old Testament. In him it's fulfilled. So we're royal priesthood because we are co-heirs with him. We are co-heirs. We are sons of God. We are now royal heirs with him of the kingdom. Let me read Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So we are royal heirs because Jesus, he's our high priest, and we are in ministry with him on this earth. He's not here now in bodily form, but we are now ministering to this earth as if we were priests, right? Next, who are we? Our identity. We're a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, I'm kind of jumping around in the passage here. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. So people for his own possession here means a purchased possession, an acquired possession. And what was the price that God paid to acquire us, to acquire Christians? It was the precious blood of Jesus spilt on the cross for hopeless people like you and me. Hopeless sinners like you and me. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So sin earns death. The payment for sin is death. We are sin factory workers from birth. That's what we produce, sin. In Psalm 51, it says, another reference, hang with me. Psalm 51, it says, surely in sin did my mother conceive me. So at birth, right? And in Romans 3.23 says, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that's what sin is. We're falling short of what God wants from us. And so we're sin factory workers from birth and sin comes off the assembly line of our hearts and it goes out into various sizes and shapes of packages and it goes out into the world we live in and, and we punch the time clock in at birth and then when we punch out all the hours and all the labor is calculated at the end and then we get our, our payment. Death. The wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. We produce it, and then we pay for it. Doesn't sound very fair, right? It's, it's not a union job. Because I can produce 10,000 tons of sin, and you can produce three tons of sin, and we both earn the same thing, the same wages, the same inheritance. Death. Sounds pretty grim. Who wants to work there? Anybody? I have uh, made employee of the month a few times, I'm sure... I know I have. And then we try to we try to put good things in our package. You know, we try to put, you know, uh, I, I rebuilt after, after the tornado. I gave money to Haiti. I gave money to Chile. I vote. I recycle. I, I sponsor a kid in Ethiopia. I do good things. And we package it up and we put it in a bow and we give it to Jesus. And it's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's, it doesn't get us out alive. We still have to pay the wage. We still have to pay death. See, 
God doesn't require goodness from us. It's a much more desperate situation than that. It's much more desperate. Just like Bud was talking about. He requires perfection from us. He requires for perfection. But the good news is that Jesus, 1,980 or so years ago, lived a sinless life. In Hebrews 4.15 it says that. He not only didn't sin, but everything he produced on earth was perfect. He produced zero tons of sin. Produced 300 trillion tons of perfection. Took the 3 trillion tons of sin that the rest of the world produced and paid the wage for it as though he produced it. He paid it with his life and paid for it on the cross. And the purchase price was the most precious commodity this world has ever seen or ever will. His blood. His blood. And it was so costly that it covers or pays for every sin ever produced by us, past, present, or future. That's good news. We can either continue to try paying with our good works in that little package, the best of which is industrial waste, or drop the package at Jesus' feet. Just lay it there. And he, he could take it and he'll put it aside and he'll give us in return perfection, his perfection that he lived on our behalf, that we couldn't do ourselves, what God requires. So we can, we could follow the only one who never fell short of God's requirement for perfection, Jesus. Believers are his purchased possession, purchased by his blood. Wow. That's good news. I'm excited. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does that mean? Jesus had a friend. His name was Lazarus. And he was a good friend of his. He was a friend of the whole family, and Lazarus was sick, and Jesus knew it. And Lazarus died, and Jesus knew it. But he didn't go, he didn't go right away to heal him. He didn't go. He waited. He waited four days till after Jesus died. And then he came to Lazarus' family. And he, he came on this scene where Lazarus' family was crying and, and mourning. And Jesus got swept in the moment. And he cried too. He cried. But then he didn't stay there in that moment. He asked them to remove the stone from that tomb, which would have been a cave. And they probably reluctantly did that. I know they did because it says so in Scripture. They didn't want to. This The smell, right, of, of a dead person four days... But he asked him to remove it. And then he, Jesus says with a loud voice, called out into that tomb, into that darkness. He said, Lazarus, come out. And then I can just imagine that, that voice kind of echoing in that cave. And then the silhouette of a man wrapped up like a mummy coming out. That is being called out of darkness into marvelous light. Think of that, that born-again picture that Peter is painting for us. That born-again, like think of a baby when it comes out. It has his eyes shut tight. And they're so cute. And then they, and then they, they open their eyes eventually and they, they, keep, they just see blurs and shapes and light movement that they've never seen before. They've seen it for the first time. And that's what it's like being born again. When you see the marvelous light for the first time. It's a spiritual light. See, light requires an organ adapted to receive it. 
So when we're born, we're given these eyeballs uh, to, to, to see this light, to see the sunlight. But in order to see a light that comes from God, his, his marvelous light, the, the word marvelous means beyond human comprehension. So wonderful that we can't imagine it. To see that, we need, we need new eyes, born again, new creature eyes. Right? I want to point out a couple things here. One is that the word, I already pointed that out, but I'll do it again. Marvelous here means beyond human comprehension. As much as Christians get new eyes to see God's excellencies on earth, we still right now only see through a glass dimly or darkly. That's what the scripture says. We can't, it pales in comparison to what heaven will be like, the light of heaven, where it doesn't need a sun because God's glory will light it up. So too, as much as we think the world we live in is dark and gloomy, when we see murder and genocide and human atrocities and rape and sin everywhere, we see people selfish, we think that's dark. It's nothing compared to what the darkness of hell is like. The deep dark of hell is equally beyond human comprehension. It's utter loneliness, it's pain, it's sorrow. The only sounds to be heard will be the wailing of people there. If even you hear that, because you're alone. It's no party, no drunken orgy with with your fellow sinners. It's the eternal torment of your lonely thoughts and your regrets forever. That's that's dark. I, I, I can't even comprehend that. I don't want to. Imagine Lazarus coming out of that tomb and he's wrapped with that stuff and and they pull that they pull that stuff off of his face, off his eyes, and he, he opens his eyes. I bet you it was like he saw for the first time. After four days, as his light, the light was making his eyes work again. So all that, all that stuff I just said, all the stuff the Bible just said, that's who we are. That's who Christians are. That's our identity. Now why? Why? Why are we that way? For what purpose are we set apart, chosen, brought into marvelous light? What purpose could there be? Why did Jesus spill his blood to do that for us? Was it just so that we could live happy lives here? Was it just so that we could have health and wealth here and now? Was it just so that we could have these nice meetings once a week and hang out with each other, the people we love, drink coffee? I, I like that. That's fun. But was that, was that why we are the way we are? Here it is in verse 9, like an like a 800-pound gorilla in the corner that we can't ignore. This is the answer why we are that way. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here it is, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why, that's why we're that way. To fully proclaim. That's what the word proclaim here means. To fully proclaim. Proclaim all of it. What are we to proclaim? His excellencies. His excellencies. That means his, his attributes. His infinite goodness. His, his intrinsic value. And because God is infinite, his attributes, therefore, are infinite. And because we're to proclaim him fully, we can never proclaim enough. 
right? We can never stop proclaiming. There's, there's never an end to what we can proclaim about God, His, His excellencies. There's never going to be a point where we're done and we don't have more to say. He's excellent. That word pales in comparison to who He is, right? We can never stop. So, fellow Christians, how do you think we're doing? Do you think we're doing, do you think we're being good proclaimers? Are we doing a good job at bringing fame and renown to God and all His goodness? Are we proclaiming Him fully? And if we're not doing a good job, why not? I asked several friends, some of, some of you are here earlier, what they think keeps Christians from proclaiming. And here's the answers. We're too busy with church stuff. We don't know how, so we don't try. It's not one of our gifts. We're afraid of what people might think of us. We don't think we'd be good enough. We don't know, we don't, we don't know enough about the Bible. We think there's some method out there that we haven't learned yet. There's some way we have to do it, and it's just not for us. We equate it with going door to door and handing out brochures, and that's just not our style. We think proclaiming is an event and not a lifestyle. We have no one to proclaim to because all the people we know are Christians. After looking at this passage, my conclusion is that the biggest reason for not proclaiming the Lord's excellencies is that we are and are continuing to and have tried to make this world our home. We're trying to make this world our home. That's why we don't proclaim. We don't sense any urgency to sharing the good news of Jesus because we're treating this world as permanent and not temporary. Our attitude is, "Ah, I'll do it later. I got time. We have no one to proclaim to because all the people we know are Christians. And we don't make non-Christian friends because we're more concerned with our temporal safety than their eternal safety. It would get messy. It wouldn't feel safe. We'd have to change the way we live. We might have to go places or be with people that make us feel uncomfortable. We might have to hear language that would offend us, witness behavior we don't approve of. We're having too much fun sunning ourselves and dozing off in the marvelous light on the deck of the cruise ship that we don't see people drowning in the dark water below. And those, those indictments aren't just for you. I mean, I struggle with every single one of these. I, I struggle with them. I need to ask forgiveness and confess these things. So if this isn't our home, where is it? What's the answer to that first question I left hanging out in space? I'm going to bring it back down. What's the answer? Is there something out there that can satisfy that deepest longing of our hearts, that longing for home. Is there? Yes. Emphatically, yes. It's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our home. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. And we get to be with him. First Peter, let me read this one more time. One, three through five. This is what's waiting. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, 
undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's a living hope. I've been reminded recently of how temporary this life is. This past week, I went to a funeral for a guy. He worked on our job site. He was 62 years old. He had a heart attack. And he collapsed on the job site. I do construction. And he he died. He was ready for retirement. He had hopes and dreams. But that was it. It was that was it was done. It was over. His life ended. Our life is temporary. That was one reminder. The other reminder I had was last spring, a year ago, two months I was laid off from work. And I got home that day after being laid off and I told my family and my daughter Esther, she looked at me like just this this tragic look on her face or just this this scared look. And she said, Dad, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And by God's grace, I just said, we're going to see if we believe what we say we believe. We're going to we're going to see if we, we will do what we say we, we've always done, and, and that is trust in God. We've always told our kids that God sustains us, not, not money, not work. God sustains us. He just chooses to use money and work sometimes, and he could use whatever he wants because he made it all, right? God sustains us. And so, by God's grace, imperfectly, we learned how to depend on him day by day. Because I was taking my paycheck for granted. I was holding on to it like it was mine, like I earned it, actually. I mean, I did work. God gave me the ability, though. He gave me the body to do it. So I, I took it for granted, and we took it for granted, but he taught us to go like this, like our pastors are always telling us to do, to depend on him. We were facing, we didn't know, maybe we'd lose our house. We were already living paycheck to paycheck before that because of decisions we made before, imperfectly trying to follow God's will. We... We could have lost our home. We, we didn't know where our next meal was coming from, but we learned to trust in Him. And I have to tell you, man, it was the sweetest time of our marriage and our family life. I, it was the sweetest time. And it was almost, when I got a job through Mr. Hummel here, he helped me get a job, and I'm working for that company still. It's a great company. I'm not saying that just because my boss is here. I really think it is. Um, he, he is He is so good to us. He reminded us of where, where our hope lies, and it's in Him. He sustains us. And by God's grace, those two months, I ended up, we ended up with more money than we would have had if I would have kept working. He's amazing. He sustains us. Church family, this is not our home. We are sojourners. We're exiles. We're kingdom of priests without an inheritance here on earth. Our home is coming. Jesus said he's going to go and prepare a home for us someday, and he's going to come back and take us with him. That's our home. This isn't. If you're a believer in Jesus, this is not your home. Consider two things, Jesus said. Someone came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said in Matthew 8, 20, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man himself, he, he had nowhere to lay his head. So he said, yeah, follow me, but you're not going to have an inheritance here. And then another guy said, Jesus, what must I do to follow you? In Mark 10, 21, Jesus said, you lack one thing. 
Go sell everything you have. Give to the poor. And then, then you, you can follow me. You'll have an inheritance in heaven. Then you can follow me. Okay, so maybe, okay, maybe this isn't our inheritance. So, so what if this isn't our inheritance? Heaven is our true home that's awaiting for us. So what are we doing here now? What are we doing here now? Consider two more things Jesus said. John 17, Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for his disciples and he's praying for us. And he prays that we wouldn't be taken out of the world, but we would be protected from the evil one while we're in it. So he doesn't want to remove us from it. He wants to just protect us while we're here. And then, and then in Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. And, and light works best when it shines in the darkness, right? So he wants us to stay here in the darkness and shine. We were called out of darkness. That's what we were saved from. Into marvelous light. That's salvation. We are born again. We could see for the first time. But we are called back into darkness. That's what we're saved to. To proclaim his excellence. Not, not to be dark, but to be lights in the darkness. So our identity is to be born again a chosen race, holy nation. Why are we that way? To proclaim his excellencies. Here's the how. Okay? How? How are we to proclaim? I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this part. I know every, a lot of us, you know, we want to, okay, just show me what I got to do. Show me what I got to do. Give me three steps and I'll go. Um, because I think the overall answer is really just do it. In God's strength, of course, do it. Just go out and make a fool of yourself. Uh, I'm serious. Be awkward. Embrace awkward, I have friends that say. We're going to mess up, right? How does a baby learn how to walk? He steps, he falls, he steps, he falls, and eventually he learns how not to fall. How does a born-again person learn how to proclaim? By opening his mouth and putting his foot in. And opening his mouth and putting his foot in and just failing and failing. And eventually we don't care care what we look like anymore. And then God can use us. God uses us then when we don't care. We just make fools of ourselves. We're, we're afraid to do that, aren't we? Verse 11. i got to kind of hang with me here. Verse 11, Peter says there's a practical, this is a practical verse for us. How to proclaim. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, just, that means just passing through this earth to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So you have this body and you have this soul that Bud talked about in his testimony that we're, we're still sinning, but we're at war, we're at war with each other. The, the soul in us that lasts eternally and the flesh in us that's temporal, they're at war. Now, the passions of the flesh just means everything about us, animal, animal desires, natural desires that have no regard for the spiritual. Those things... If we, if we get bogged down in those, those passions, those, those fleshly things, they just cause roots to grow, right? And then we can't be proclaimers. Wouldn't it be sad if our Christian life was reduced to just trying not to sin for our own holiness? Wouldn't it be better to abstain, to proclaim, to abstain from these fleshly passions so that we could be better used to be proclaimers, Right? We have to remember that everything we desire on this earth that can be met in a temporary way will be met in heaven in a complete and eternal way. 
We're all holding on to, if you're a Christ follower, you're holding on to a winning lottery ticket. You're just waiting to cash it in. That's it. If God gives us stuff now, thank Him for it. But use it all for His glory. It's passing. It's going to be gone. I know it sounds easy. Like I said, we got to do it in His strength, right? Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Everything Christians do are, is being studied. Everything we do is being studied. What do we show? You know, we're not trying to burn down Washington, D.C. We're not trying to burn down Rome, and no one's accusing us for that. But are people justified in accusing us for being hypocritical? Are people justified in accusing us for being aloof or standoffish or distant? Are we the hardest workers? Are we the nicest people? Do we leave big tips? Everything we do should be a proclamation. We are proclaimers. It's our identity. What kind are we? That's the question. So that when the Lord visits, they will have already had a taste. People have already seen Jesus in us, the light in us, And they'll praise Him on that day. Hopefully they'll be saved. Brought out of darkness. See, the day of visitation in this passage isn't talking about Jesus' second coming. It's talking about the day He visits you, or the day He's already visited you, or the day He's already visited you. It's your day of salvation. It's when He has called you individually from darkness into light. That's what this day of visitation is. And so, if we are being lights, if we are being called in this world, they've already seen Jesus in us, and they'll praise God that day when He comes to Him. That person, hopefully for salvation. Okay, I just want to ask these questions. Just just to close. I've already asked myself these questions. And maybe one of them is a question that you can ask yourself and have, and just leave out there and confess or or work out with God. Okay? So, So if one of these applies to you, just write it down on the bottom. Okay? You are to live among the world if you're a Christian. To whom are you proclaiming? Do you only hang with Christians? Only hang out with Christians? You're already set apart as your identity. Are you trying to add to that by setting yourself apart further than you need to? Is there a fear of people that you need to confess? Is there an apathy for others that you need to confess? Is there a love for this world that you need to confess? What has got you rooted here? What has got you tied down? Do you really believe there's a home for you waiting? A lasting home that can satisfy that deepest desire in you? Do you believe it? And are you living that way? If God asked you to go plant a church somewhere, to be on that team... Could you do it? If God asks you to let go, to let go of your home and your job and your life as you know it, could you do it? No, I mean, I mean, really. If God asked you to let go of your home, your job, could you do it for His glory to proclaim? Maybe, maybe, You're just not sure about this whole Christian thing. Maybe you feel like you've been living for this world. 
it all feels so pointless sometimes, temporary. You've been placing your hope and trust in things that don't last. And you would love to live for something that's permanent, that's forever. But maybe you're not really sure if it exists. You're not even, uh, it sounds too good to be true. It doesn't even seem possible. You're not convinced. Maybe you feel like Christians are the ones in the dark and not you. Maybe you feel perfectly content with your life. And you feel happy and you really don't see all the need for this. Your life's good. And I would say that's, that's fine. If this life is all there is, you're good. You're good. If this life is all there is, you're good. If you're content with your life. But what if it isn't? What if there's more? What if God has bigger plans for you? What if today is the day of visitation for you? Is it? Is today the day of salvation for you? Is today the day that God is calling out your name and saying, Chris, come out. Maybe today's that day. Don't let it pass without responding, without coming out and letting him pull the cloth off your eyes. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, praise you. You made this world. You hold it together. You spoke it into being. You made this earth and everything in it. And we screwed it up. We're the ones that made it dark. We're the ones that turned our back on you. We treated you as enemies, Jesus. And you, you loved us enough to try to to come back, to, to live on this earth, to live a life we couldn't live, of perfection for us, to die a death that we all deserve, to raise again to a living hope for us. You loved us enough. Lord Jesus, would you, would you call out of darkness into marvelous light those here who, who've just just turn their back, as all of us have. And those, those people here who have already bent their knee to you, God, would you, would you enable us here, this body at Windsor Community Church, would you transform us to be proclaimers, to be lights in this world? Would you give us the ability to do that? Would you help us pull the roots that we have embedded in the ground out so that we may proclaim your excellencies that are infinite? Lord God, would you do that for us? Help us proclaim in Windsor, in Colorado, to the ends of the earth, by your strength. Pray this in Jesus' matchless, precious name. Amen.